Welcome to Property Funder podcast with me, Michael Dean. I am here with Alistair. Now, before we start speaking to Alistair, just a reminder, if you're new to the podcast, welcome. What took you so long? Um, clearly, if you're not a new, uh, a new visitor to the podcast, a new listener, um, and you're not already done so, can I please remind you to like and subscribe um, so that we can get higher up the rankings and we can have more people hear from interesting and exciting guests like Alistair. Now, uh, without further ado, Alistair, please uh, tell us your full name, uh, the name of your company and what does your company do? Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining today. I'm uh, Alistair Hoyne, the CEO of Finance Group. We're a diversified non-bank FI, I think is probably the easiest way to describe it. I I started out just being a mortgage broker, um, but uh, as of today, we have property finance for both vanilla and high net worth investors. We have a business finance brokerage. We have a protection insurance business. Uh, We have an education publishing and events business. Um, We have a technology and software development company, Um, our own lending arm. Uh, We're just about to launch an origination business. And I'm also enjoying currently setting up a treasury team. So kind of uh, quite broad, really, uh, uh, in terms of activity over the last two and a half years. Well, I, I don't really know where to start, frankly, uh, and so that's that's an awful lot of things. I, I actually this this, uh, this is about the third time we've tried to do this uh, this podcast interview. So um, appreciating uh, Alistair's patience uh, in, in in getting this set up. But it, on one of the previous uh, recording attempts, I actually made uh, did doing a bit of research on on Alistair. Um, have uh, went on on went on your LinkedIn. And I have I've written down uh, in, in I suppose in order Silver Card Savvy House Sockgen Standard Chartered Trans Global Korean Korea Investment Candid Properties uh, was it Candid or uh, Candid or yeah, Candid. A- Candid Asia uh, um, Repossession Resume and then Finance. Um, I mean, I've only got an hour and a half to, to talk to you today, Alistair. I'm not sure we're going to get through all of that. But do you want to just give us a quick potted history okay, of, 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 of that? Because, you know, you're, you're not you're not a particularly aged man. So I'm just wondering, how does one squeeze so much into a relatively small spaces of time? And yeah, maybe do you want to give us some highlights oh. as to from from start from start to where we are? Certainly. So it's probably been about 20 years, really, my career so far. Um and um, I mean, I started out, I mean, so some of those ones that you quoted originally, so for anyone that wants to go to my LinkedIn, quite easy to get to it. You can just type alistairhoyne.com and it'll actually take you to my LinkedIn page. Um, so as it stands, so Silvercard and Savvy Home were, were both two of my initial entrepreneurial ventures when I was younger. I was still at university at the time. Um, Silvercard was fundamentally a concierge business. I am, um, you know, when you're at university, Mike, you probably remember this as well, right? There were always those, I swear to God, it was like the German students that would walk around like they were going to a cricket match, right? The chinos, the jumper over their, their, uh, over their, over their shirts at university, where all the rest of us were just in shorts and t-shirt. And they always looked like super posh all the time. And so I thought to myself, they've obviously got lots of daddy's money to spend. So why don't I create like a business that gives you two for one in nightclubs and pubs and queue jump and such things. So I, I, I built a business that was a membership card that got you discounts, sold it to all these rich German students and, uh, and and eventually ended up selling it to the student union themselves, which was quite cool. I then uh, I then moved um, because I wasn't spending too much time in my classes. I ended up dropping out, starting again, 
in uh, in uh, having left Lancaster University and moved over to Aston University in Birmingham, um, and then got bored very quickly again. Set up my second business, which was Savvy Home, which was uh, a, a very early online real estate portal, which was uh, came out in and around the time that Right Move was first starting, and it was designed around a period in time when we had, when the home information pack had been released. So it was a precursor to the ERC rules. And it required people to get um, this home information survey done before they were allowed to sell a house to talk about how environmentally friendly it was and so on. <clears throat> and interestingly, the way the legislation was written at the time, it stated that it was going to start with properties that are sort of six bedrooms or more. Three months later, it would be five bedrooms or more. Three months later, four bedrooms or more and so on. And it cost about £500 to arrange this survey. And so the legislation, interesting, had a bit of a loophole. It stated that if your property is already listed for sale at the point in which the requirement to get a home information pack for your property comes into play, you don't need to get one. So I very quickly put a website up online which said, list your property for sale for that now, for whatever price you're willing to walk away for, whether or not you're planning on selling it or not, simply to avoid having to get this home information pack. And it was, uh, again, it was quite a big success. We uh, think we had about 50,000 listings at one point. Somebody even bought a house that was twice the price it was meant to be. Um, <laughs> and we ended up selling it off to a, to an insurance company who I never understood why they were interested in it until years later, I realized that the data, they wanted the data on the website because they were they were doing home insurance and such things. So that was a, that was a good experience as well. Quite funny as well that this Arab came along and bought a property for twice the value, just without even seeing it. Just said, "I, I accept your offer. Here you go." We were quite stunned. We were just charging ten pound a year, so we weren't getting any benefit out of it. But um, but it was a good experience, and um, I think there's still like a press release on it somewhere online, which where we literally kind of say like, "We can't believe the government has been so silly to miss this," you know. Um, <laughs> So I um so I did that again while I was still at university and then um sorry I mean my voice is not normally this husky I have literally just recovered from a really bad cough that's why you're getting the the sexy husky voice today but um <laughs> oh, we can't but, charge uh, our listeners any extra for it I'm afraid Alistair so no exactly we, we, we what, just, are you, what are you we'll wearing have to enjoy it yeah <laughs> <laughs> so um so then I um I I decided you know I probably should pay attention to my degree as soon as I'm doing it the second time round now. And in both times, I had to start again because weirdly at Lancaster University, it was a Bachelor's of Business, business Administration, whereas at Aston, it was a Bachelor of Science in Business. So it was completely different degrees. They made me start all over again, which was such a pity to have to have two freshers years. Um, <laughs> but uh, but all the same, I, um, I got to my third year and suddenly it started to get a bit bored of my course. I, I think I felt that for the most part, it was all pretty much common sense, right? My, my favourite, uh, I think I remember getting this essay because we had a business psychology module in the degree. And I think one of them was, you know, an essay that we got like in November that was due to be submitted by the 5th of January. And it was like, what is stress? And I think my opening paragraph was stress is writing this on New Year's Eve with four <laughs> days to go, having not done anything whatsoever in regards to this essay so far. <laughs> like, like plus points for that, you know. Um, but anyway, my third year, I ended up because um, I've always worked, you see. So, you know, from working at MS, you know, part time Christmas shelving. I remember distinctly um, actually uh, 
getting told off once because the job was so boring, right? And you know, you'd be in there working after hours. And at one point I'd already like managed to staff all my shelves. So there was a friend of mine that worked across the hall in the kids department. So I think we got like an American football and we're like throwing each other, throwing it to each other across the corridor, right? You know, the shops closed. This is the Marks and Spencers in Solihull, which I don't know if it's still there. But um, I remember I was getting sort of collared by one of the managers and taken down and put to work in the refrigeration department. And it was a, it was a funny, uh, the, the, the reason why I bring up the story is it's quite funny because when I left, I um, I wrote to asking if I could have any feedback. And they said the feedback was that we uh, we wouldn't uh, hire you again. <laughs> right. And so I was like, OK, I can probably guess why. But my mother was so upset that she had my dad ring the HR team pretending to be me to ask why they decided that they weren't going to hire me again, to have this HR person upload about all the naughty things I'd done while having <laughs> free time to my father while I was like 14. That didn't go down very well at all. So, um, but, um, but, but I have always worked, you know, the Marks and Spencers. I've worked in JW Sports. I've worked in Toys R Us. I've worked in bars and nightclubs. Um, I've worked as a waiter. You know, I've always, I've, I've always worked and I've always enjoyed working. I don't know if it's just I wanted money or I just enjoyed working. But in my third year of university, having sold off my second business, I ended up getting a job in Société Générale in London for the summer, just doing a bit of data entry work for the most part. And, um, and opening bits of the mail. And they realized that actually I was far more efficient than most of the temps they'd ever had. So they got me to start doing more work. So they got me to start helping them with doing uh, data, uh, well, internet searches really, and interviewing sales teams to put together information to create account plans for some of their key clients. And again, I seem I must have done a good job because at the end of the summer, they said that we don't, we don't really wanna lose you. So would you consider continuing to work here and I'm like, well, I've got to go back to university. They're like, oh, that doesn't matter. You go, what, how about this? You work here Monday to Friday and we'll give you, we'll, we'll double your salary. We'll give you a housing allowance and maybe you can just turn up for your exams. And I'm like, to be honest, English university is so lax. I'm pretty sure I could get away with it. So I, I ended up doing that. I ended up <laughs> dialing into teamwork, taking holidays to do my exams and the funniest thing was, and you know, hopefully everyone there has already retired or died or moved on to different jobs, because I will tell you a funny story. So as part of my housing allowance, they said, um, you know, where are you going to stay? So I said, I guess I'll stay at the local, um, I don't know, Premier Inn or something, which was in London prices. It was still about £100 a night. So I got this £100 a night expense allowance and I was never actually um, asked to show any expense receipts. So instead, I decided to stay in a 16 bed dorm at the youth hostel at St. Paul's because that was only eight pounds a night. And it meant that I would have so much more disposable income. And, um, and funny enough, being an investment bank, they probably would have been proud of me for doing something like that, uh, you know, had, had they ever found out. Um, but I still managed to get in fresh every day. It was just a bit weird always putting a suit on whenever, you know, in this dorm room when everybody else was you know, yeah. in their dreadlocks and just backpacking around London. Um, but um, so anyway, I ended up finishing and graduating. I managed to get a 2-1, just about, just got a 2-1. I was helped by the fact that um, randomly earlier in my life, I lived in Italy. And so I learned Italian while living there. And I took Italian as an elective at university. And because I didn't have an A-level in Italian, I was considered a beginner. So I was put in the beginner class. 
and I actually happened to speak fluent Italian, so that actually helped boost my grade so I could get a 2-1, uh, which was perfect. And having finally got my degree, I was given the opportunity to uh, to have a real job and they moved me across to Hong Kong to help build the team that I was working for in London and stayed with them for another couple of years and then got uh, headhunted to Standard Chartered in Singapore to go and run the global non-bank FI team, uh, again, in the client account and origination team, um, which was kind of quite a cool move, really, because I think I was 28 at the time. So having graduated at 25, um, having had that experience of working for SOCGEN while still at university, I sort of caught up and added a few years. But if you look at it strictly from a timeline perspective, I graduated finally in 2009 and a year later was a director running a $500 million a year book in Standard Chartered in Singapore. So uh, a very fast track in my uh, fast track career. And so how old are you then? What, 25, 26? Uh, no, because uh, let me think about it. So I would have been probably 26, 27. Yeah. Yeah. Because I had obviously because I'd skipped a year, actually, I'd done a gap year. Then obviously I wasted two years at Lancaster before I finally went and did the next degree. So I, I sort of caught up for having wasted all that time earlier in my you know, post A-level years and managed to you know, fast forward and you know, be on sort of six figures a year at 27, which is quite exciting. Um, it was also kind of weird because I had to get used to this principle that my staff were like 10 years older than me. Um, so that was quite unusual as well. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll rush through the next bit. So I stayed there for another couple of years, ended up growing quite a large business, managing teams in London, New York and Hong Kong. Um, I was uh, looking after clients like PIMCO and Aberdeen and Goldman Sachs Asset Management and Franklin Templeton and Fidelity and all these kind of sort of big name asset managers. And fundamentally, my job was to take them out for drinks and buy them lots of fancy dinners and take them to interesting entertainment events to fundamentally build relationships with them and then get them to spend more money with the bank. Um, and uh, I obviously paired this with knowing exactly what their businesses did and what they did for our bank and trying to find ways to make things more cost effective for them. But fundamentally, it was, you know, the old fashioned entertainment job of become friends and then their banker. So it was uh, uh, was this pre-crisis? Was this sort of pre all the sort of uh, anti-bribery, uh, uh, you know, sort of the anti-bribery stuff where, you know, you can't you can barely look at a you can barely look at a client before they have to log it and, and register the register the gift. Uh, or, or whether it was just the regulations different in, in Southeast Asia? No, regulations were quite different over there. So, I mean, we normally, the, the way it generally worked, right, was so that we, we didn't really have any limits in terms of what we could spend from a sort of food and drink perspective. We personally generally had about $200 a day as sort of allowed allowances. Um, but what normally happened, and because, you know, eventually you become quite friendly with people is, you know, it becomes kind of a case of, well, I'll spend what I can afford and then you spend what you can afford and combined, you know, it's it goes that much further. So if there was two or three of your colleagues, they all had 200 each, let's say. And then often the client, the 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 the, the, the buy side client would say by the end of it, I'm having such a good time. I've got $200 to spend. Let's spend my bit of allocation as well. So you could actually make it stretch quite far, uh, quite economically. The, the, the budgets that were crazy were weirdly when I got to when I when I um you know I when I worked for the Korean hedge fund, that was insane because the banks were still quite specific. You know, you had this much you could spend. This was kind of like this was your own allowance. This was what you were allowed to spend in terms of hotels, restaurants, and so on. But when it came to working for the Korean hedge fund, where I was 
fundamentally running a $32 billion asset manager, a COO for their international business and in charge of distribution, so asset raising fundamentally. They gave me a $30,000 a month expense account, which I was expected to spend. And it's kind of difficult to spend that kind of money. And the, I, I, kept, I said to my boss once, I'm like, how do you expect me to spend this kind of money? I mean, like, because one, the investment banks are taking us out for drinks, so I don't need to spend any money. And when it comes to things like, you know, family offices, institutional investors, pension funds, they're not allowed to accept drinks because, of course, they're considered inducements. So what I, one, I don't know how, why I have so much money. And two, I don't know what to do with it. He's like, Alistair, my allowance is 50000 a month. So to justify my allowance, I really need you to spend your allowance. <laughs> so it was crazy, mate. So I was like, I think. Was, was it like this? Like sounds like Wolf of Wall Street, and is that famous? There's that famous scene that my friends and I joke about. It said, you know, when when Jordan Belfort's dad come, comes in and, he, and he's with waving the re- receipts, yeah. he says, "Is it?" what's ej entertainment is it we said we we had stakes they said uh, is it about 26 a stake cost twenty six thousand dollars well the sides it's twenty six thousand dollars of sides you know how is that possible it's obviously right? that guy that drops the salt right you know with the top <laughs> yeah. of the stage <laughs> yeah um, well, well these i mean if you're going to say nuzarat yeah i guess you probably are going to spend that sort of money you know without thinking too much so it's interesting, right? So I mean, like, so I didn't actually ever do this with my expenses, funny enough. But there is, funny enough, as there is a famous strip club in New York, which actually has a steakhouse at the centre of it, designed <laughs> intentionally to get around the expense problem. So you know, like, you can order. So you go into it, order the steak, order your sides, right? Have the dancers sit on your laps, watch them in the poles around you, and of course the expenses come out showing something like, you know, like I don't know, Tomahawk Steakhouse, right? Just slightly more expensive, right? I mean, every dance they probably put it on as like an order of French fries or something. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. They're serving, um, they're serving you Blossom Hill wine, and they're they're calling it Chateau Lafitte. Yeah, exactly. Uh, no, uh, well, yeah. well, well, quite. Whatever so, her name was, Blossom, you know. Yeah, Blossom. Yeah, yeah, quite, quite. Well, uh, so yeah, how how did so um so the career so how did you how did you end up in the Korean hedge fund? Uh, so that, they were one of my clients. There? Yes, they were one of my one of my clients actually originally, and um. I um I, I realized that I was I was I was harking to go back to Hong Kong. Um there wasn't any roles at Standard Chartered Hong Kong at the time. They the Hong Kong office for them was mostly their equity and derivatives team, whereas I was again sitting in this sort of holistic global banking team. So I um I got offered a job and a nice pay rise as it sounds to move to move back to Hong Kong and to go and join these chaps. I'd done this brief consulting work while waiting for my sort of gardening leave to finish. Um, and um, and yeah, and ended up with helping this Korean fund um, raise something like five hundred million dollars into setting up two new USITS funds over in Luxembourg as its sort of first foray into international fund management. And it, it was a very interesting one because I actually ended up having to travel around the world, you know, marketing this fund. Um, so we, um, you know, I remember we this is possibly the craziest journey I've ever done in my life. It was like an I was in between marriages at the time as well, so it's quite convenient. But I think I ended up starting in London. Then I did um, the train to Paris. And then from Paris, I went to Luxembourg. And then from Luxembourg, I went to um, Zurich. And then from Zurich, I went, I flew, weirdly, because I was trying to save the company money. I'd done all my own traveling. Flew back to City Airport in London just to fly to Madrid. (laughs) (laughs) 
who lost my luggage on the way, by the way. Oh, no. And I was only there for a day. So I ended up turning up to this really, really exclusive family office in Madrid in a vest and a tracksuit bombs. No. And I was actually so impressed that I actually turned up that this gave me about 50 million. Oh, wow. Then I got back on the plane, back to London to pick up my luggage because it was easier for me to fly back and collect it there than it was to have it sent to, to Madrid where I was leaving the next day anyway. To fly to Reykjavik to then have a meeting there, followed by a meeting in Copenhagen, which is, by the way, like the most expensive place in the world to drink. 500, I think it was 500 euros for a bottle of Absolute in a, in a bar. Oh, wow. And uh, the taxi ride was something like 300 euros for a 30 minute journey. To then fly to Boston for the um, international, like the US, I think it's like the US Financial Forum, where I gave a talk. Happened to be the time when the Boston Red Sox were playing in the World Series. Crazy story. Conference was really boring. So I ended up finding this, you know, walking around town looking for a bar. Found this bar, this dive bar called Daisy Buchanan's, which was like complete shell. Right. But anyway, a cheap beer. And I was drinking there. And this the they, this the bartender came up to me and said, I'm sorry, sir, we're going to have to ask you to leave. There's a private party. So I said, oh, OK, no problem at all. Sorry about that. And they're like, oh, wait, you're not American. No, I'm English. I'm just here for a conference. Oh, that's OK. You can you're, you're welcome to stay there. <laughs> and anyway, the entire Boston Red Sox team came in the night before they were to play their, you know, World Series where they finally won on home ground since the curse of Babe Ruth. And I ended up chatting to them, talking to them, smoking with them. I ended up buying 24 bottles of Asti Martini because this bar was so cheap it didn't have champagne, giving <laughs> it to them. They ended up giving me tickets to the game. So I ended up actually watching them win the World Series, um, not bothering with the final day of the conference. And um, when I went back home to Hong Kong and told off, showed off to my American friends, they couldn't believe me. So I ended up calling a bunch of the players no. um, on my phone because they'd given me their number to hand it over to them, to prove it to them. And obviously I had loads of pictures and everything, but it was <laughs> a crazy story. And um, and then eventually flew to New York and then Dubai and then similar story in Dubai. So I got to Dubai. I was at the Middle Eastern Financial Forum again and um, spent most of my time outside smoking, talking to a lot of these sort of shakes that ran uh, ran sovereign wealth funds, joking about what I would look like if I wore the full garb. Would I look like Lawrence of Arabia? And um, and having one of them say to me, well, when are you leaving? I'm leaving tomorrow. No, you're not. You're coming to my office to talk about your Korean fund. Um, we will find you a new flight. So I ended up, again, staying an extra day, going to the guy's office, talking about this Korean fund, joking about the fact that in reality, if you want exposure to the Korean stock market, you can just buy Samsung. That's 30% of the stock market. But he was like, no, no, I'm genuinely interested in diversifying. Anyway, I got him to commit about 200 million before he then chartered a jet for me to take me back to Hong Kong as an apology for missing my economy class flight. <laughs> Well, wow, what, what a trip. What a trip. I mean, it probably took about, that probably took two, about two years off your life, but it yeah. uh, it sounds quite sounds like quite the trip. Uh, so, yeah. yeah. That, what, what, wow. Uh, so. So how long were, how long were you with the Korean hedge fund for and, and, and what there. sort of then what then moved what what moved you on? So I was only there about a year and a half as it stands. So it was, which is a pity, but to be honest, I would have died from that expense account. I, I, was, six, I was going to say, I was going to say. Six litre bottles of Belvedere are a great way of getting that shifted on a daily basis. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And a great use of the bottle after when you put different coloured sand in and your girlfriend's happy. 
Oh, wow, that's very good. Yeah, I like that. That's, that's a good, that's a, you heard it first here, guys. I, I don't think uh, I don't think I've heard of that use before. So well, well done, Alistair. Thank you for that. Um, so, so, they yeah. up, um, so they ended up having a massive insider trading scandal. So it was in and around the time that HSBC were having that sort of derivatives um, scandal as well. OK. So the idea that they were mis-selling derivatives to people that, you know, were clearly uh, vulnerable customers. Um, so they were, from what I understand, is they were selling complex derivative type fund products to elderly people in the in in Korea, and it became some, there was a scandal. It hit the news, and they lost something like 30% of their AUM overnight as a result. So they they knee-jerk reaction. We've got to recentralize our efforts on our domestic business, salvage what we can. They we're closing all our international offices. So Hong Kong, Ho Chi Minh, and Shanghai were all closed overnight. A year wasted setting up two USEX funds, and it sort of just folded back on itself pretty much. So uh, I was kind of like given a year's worth of redundancy pay, even though I'd only been there for a year. And um, I ended up deciding, you know what, I'm sick and tired of working for other people. Things always seem to go wrong, or you know, you know, even though you're doing a good job, something happens and they have to let you go. And so I decided, you know what, I think I'm going to take my experience and skill set in having helped grow an investment bank and helped launch a hedge fund in reality to, to go and actually advise other hedge funds and, and private equity funds on how to get set up, how to grow and how to raise money and look good and how to get compliant and build their businesses. I ended up doing that for about um, seven years, um, started with just hedge funds and, uh, and private equity. Uh, then I started advising a number of fintechs. I even ended up doing a bit of med tech, prop tech. Um, I even think I helped work in a, with a restaurant in designing a new EPOS system for a chain of restaurants. So generally, I wasn't the tech person. I was the, the business person. So a lot of these startup companies, they have this, this great background in technology. They've come up with something new, but they don't understand how to commercialize the business, how to actually start making money. They're too busy with getting to this, you know, like mass amount of volume of people. And then they never, they almost forget to start charging. So I was sort of engaged to, with a lot of these firms to help them actually make money. Um, and, um, and, and you know, it was an enjoyable job. I ended up sitting on the boards of a number of companies. I ended up developing some of my own ideas. I set up an online property company in Hong Kong again. Uh, this one was meant to take advantage of um, a slight uh, deviation in the market in Hong Kong. So whereas in the UK, you know, if you're renting a house, um, the estate agent will get paid by the landlord generally for that service. Um, and the same thing if you're selling a house, the estate agent gets paid by the vendor, right? In Hong Kong, both parties had to pay. So in other words, if you were renting an apartment, you would actually have to pay a commission to the estate agent for having found you that apartment, even though you were the one that actually spent hours online looking at all these listings and visiting. All this guy did was open the door. He's going to charge you a month's rent as a commission, and the estate agent is going to charge the, vent, the, the landlord a month's rent as well. So I found this, you know, and the same thing happened on sales. And I found this ridiculous because, you know, the estate agent's doing the service for the vendor. Not me. I had to go and walk around a hundred different apartments, you know. So why am I giving you a month's rent for opening a door? <coughs> so I decided to set up an estate agency that said no commission if you're buying or renting. 
Um, and it became quite popular, actually. And, you know, I featured on Bloomberg News and, you know, as a real disruptor to the Hong Kong market. And, um, you know, and uh, but the problem was I completely failed to recognize that the, uh, you know, all the richest people in Hong Kong were property developers. Those property developers all owned estate agencies and I was cannibalizing their business model. So I ended they, up in a bit of a They didn't like that very situation. much, I imagine. <laughs> yeah. No, so I ended up in a bit of a sticky situation where um, I had thousands of clients all visiting the website on a daily basis and very little stock. I actually ended up having to go on this sort of direct-to-vendor approach where I had to go and find vendors selling their property privately to get it listed on my site. So it ended up sort of like collapsing because, you know, you can't have 100 properties and 10,000 potential buyers. Um, it becomes a bit problematic. But I did try and change the game quite a lot. I mean, you know, back in the day, you know, we didn't have such advanced phones. You know, you had camera phones, but they weren't brilliant. It was like early days for iPhones. So I had invested in um, getting my entire team these um digital DSLR cameras that happened to have an Android phone built in. So they could actually go on site, take professional pictures and professional video, and then still upload it and still have a phone to use. Um, you know, we did we did 3D modeling of, of, of properties so that people could use like virtual headsets to, you know, virtually tour the buildings and everything. So we had, we invested in all the sort of technology, uh, but, you know, again, we just died as a result of not having enough stock and Funny enough, about five years later, I got a call from someone saying that they were they loved what we'd built. Sorry, it didn't work. They were going to try again. And would I give them some hints and tips? And uh, <laughs> and eventually, I believe it actually took off and did well. It was just I was too early in the market, if that makes sense. Yeah, sometimes it's just about just about bad timing, isn't it? So, um, so in terms so of that's, uh, um, yeah, so 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 was that that was candid properties, was it the, the candidate? And so, Asia was it was supplemented by the fact that I was continuing my consulting work. And and then and then what you know I guess you, presumably you're now back in the UK. So what what was the spark to to kind of bring you back to the UK to to get you you know to get finance started basically? Yeah. So I mean it was uh, it's it's probably not the nicest of stories, but I mean my um, I'm an only child, and my father had a cardiac arrest. And I was obviously in Asia and my mum called me up. I think I was driving at the time and got told that dad had had a heart attack. He had literally stopped or a cardiac arrest. I'm told it's a different thing. Forgive me. Um, he had died for about a minute and a half and thankfully had been resuscitated because of all things he was spinning. And thankfully there happened to be a doctor in the spinning class with him. Oh, wow. managed, to, managed to bring him back to life and um, that sort of you know, appraisal of the frailty of life and the fact that my parents were all I had and not having brothers and sisters made me realise that, you know, they've looked after me the first 20 years of my life. I think it's my responsibility to to go back home and, and look after them, really. And I think growing up in this, the fact that I sort of, I, we, we didn't mention this earlier, but I, from the ages of seven to 14, I actually lived in Italy. So that Mediterranean concept of family is that you know you look after your elders and obviously with 10 years in Asia they're also very much focused on looking after elders so it, it so I decided that you know what I'd I'd had enough of Asia anyway I'd been there long enough uh it was time to come home and you know look after my parents and um thankfully my dad's since recovered and last week had a pacemaker fitted so hopefully he won't have any situation like that but he did end up having a triple heart bypass and my mother who suffers terribly from anxiety 
was struggling on her own. So I came back to to look after them and um and that's what sort of led me to um selling up the shares in my old business and and looking at a new new angle. And um the first six months I just focused on on them, um having a casual look in the background at jobs and uh funny enough, uh, ex-investment banker slash fund manager slash private equity consultant whose entire experience is based in Asia is not that valuable in London, seems. <laughs> I uh, I had uh, hundreds of rejections. Um, I didn't know anything about the property finance world in those in those days. It's not that long ago I say in those days, so it was years ago, it's two and a half years ago, three years ago now. Um, so I just kept applying to jobs in banks and fund managers and just kept getting rejected really. They they kind of like politely sort of said to me, Alistair, if we wanted someone with experience of China, we'd hire someone that actually spoke Chinese. Um, and I never learned it, unfortunately, except for a bunch of swear words and which <laughs> tunnel to use to get to the office. Um, so I ended up getting um, just starting to apply for local jobs in the Lancashire in the region where I live. I ended up getting two offers finally, both for about 23 grand a year which was probably about one-tenth to one-twentieth of my previous salary. Yeah. Um, and um, one was to work as a business analyst in a company in the Forest of Boland that produces prefabricated toilets and to help them analyse their data to see how to improve their sales. And the other one, the other job offer was to be the office manager for a property finance brokerage based in Lancaster, um, where my job was to fix printers and do data entry and build databases and spreadsheets right and and uh just fundamentally be like a ea to the owner of the company um and um and while i was in that job which i quite enjoyed as it stands i started to say well you do realize that you know i've got far more experience than just being an ea i could probably help you grow this business and so he got me to start talking to lenders and to learn the products and and it turned out that i was quite good at um at uh at the job. I mean, to me, it was just a far easier version of finance than what I'd previously done <laughs> and um, picked it up quite quickly, uh, renegotiated my uh, my salary with him off the back of this uh, improved uh, revenue I was generating for him. But uh, he does, he turned around and decided actually that he was going to, um, he would rather wait another year and keep banking the additional revenue I was generating rather than bring me up to the revised salary when planned. And, and therefore, as a result, I wasn't that happy with him. So I decided to leave and set up my own firm. And that's what led me to setting up finance, as I as I pronounce it, like the way Americans would say finance. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, no, but, you know, I'm so grateful to him because if it wasn't for him giving me the job in the first place and showing me this new industry, I wouldn't have found a career that I've actually turned into really loving, you know, and waking up every morning excited about the day ahead and, getting stressed at weekends when I don't get enough work emails and you know you, you you're now you know you're now listed and ranked as a bnc uh bnc sort of power list um you know entry you know the last couple of years um it feels like it's quite a meteoric rise in many ways Alistair you know what's do you want to talk, talk tell us uh, tell our listeners about uh about about how quickly finance has grown and uh, and you know the various uh, avenues and headcount and all that kind of stuff all, all that kind of good stuff you know what's and and i suppose what sets you apart from from your peers certainly so um yeah so it's been a meteoric rise i would say 
I got I got told the other day that I wasn't applicable for Rising Star because I'd already exceeded it, which I thought was quite quite quaint, disappointing, but quaint. Um, and um, so we set up finance. I think so. I originally set up finance as a sole trader um, back in uh, August 2021, and um, because based on the previous company I'd worked for, which wasn't making much more than sort of 30 to 50,000 pounds a year, I figured that, you know, it was going to be at least a year before I got to those kind of numbers. So I decided I'd set up as a sole trader, knowing that until I got to about 30,000 pounds a year, it wasn't going to be uh, tax efficient to be limited. And uh, and then much and then ended up joining a, a network because I even though in Hong Kong I was authorized for advising and dealing on dealing and advising on securities and asset management I didn't those exams don't really cross over to the UK so I didn't have much in OSCA history so I figured better join a network to start so I got up and running registered the network were pretty accommodating because they knew I knew the job already and because of my previous experience in finance and I ended up making 30,000 pounds in my first month uh, which was uh, brilliant and so frustrating because I then had to set up a limited company because I'd like to be tax efficient, reapply to the FCA under my network to be reauthorized. And all of that took another three months. So my limited company finally got up and running in January. And we, we've just really, you know, grown well beyond expectation from something that I set up to make £30,000 a year as a part-time job. You know, we've ended up now having a group with 10 separate companies within it, about 16 members of staff. It's gone up to 25, pulled back to 11. We're now quite happy around 16. Um, we did revenue of £250,000 in our first year. And we're on track this year to do revenue of over 2 million, which is just remarkable, really. Um, and, you know, I, I put it down to having built an outstanding team of people I mean, because I'm relatively new to the industry, right? Sure, I understand finance and I understand relationships and such things. But, you know, I, there's a big credit to Imogen, who's my head of property finance, who's, again, very young. I think she's in her mid-20s, but she's got six years of experience as a mortgage broker. I managed to acquire her from the network that I was working with, and she's really helped to grow our property finance team to new heights. Um, I have quite a significant number of women in my organization. I think 60, 70% of the company is women in senior leadership positions, and they've all really grown the business. Molly, my head of lending, for example, she's really helped develop the business out to the point that even though we launched our lending arm in uh, April this year, uh, we, um, we're now getting about 50 million pounds a month worth of inquiries, which is again, outstanding because a lot of lenders I know, smaller bridging lenders, only get about 50 million a year. So to get 50 million a month, that's quite quite amazing. Um, and um, and we've you know, like I said, we've also developed a, an education arm because, to be honest, I got sick and tired of telling people how drawdowns worked. So I ended up saying, well, why don't I record my knowledge and that of my team, that of our solicitors and accountants and tax advisors, create an online academy and allow our clients to access this for the cheap price of 99 pounds a month. Uh, so that they can actually learn everything that they need to learn about property strategy and property finance before finally coming to us with a deal. Instead of going to those gurus that exist out there that charge you £25,000 to learn probably less and uh, lose all your deposit in the process. So. the um, But I mean, if you really want to know the real secret, in my view, I think it's the fact that we developed our own facilities 
um, our own products. So a lot of my peers are, you know, and I think there's what, 30,000 brokers in the market? For the most part, they're all selling the same goods and services that are all on what I see as supermarket shelves, right? You have your bridging loans with different rates, loan to values, speed, you have your development facilities, your development exit facilities, buy to lets, commercial mortgages, all these products that exist in our market. And we have 300 or so what lenders all competing for the same client base, either with a different rate or different loan to value, different service offering. Everyone tells you their service is the best, by the way. Um, it's always, you know, you always have to try everyone to see whose service really is the best. And, um, and so we decided that, um, you know, we needed to do something different to differentiate ourselves so that we wouldn't be forced into competing on price, uh, which is what most people do. And so we ended up deciding, well, why don't we see if we can create some facilities that just don't exist in the market? So very conveniently in November 2021, one of my clients came to me saying that they wanted to buy a property that they wanted to title split. So this was a freehold block of flats that they knew that if they split it into leasehold, there would be an uplift in value. And traditionally, now, this is what developers do, obviously, when they build apartments. Now, he knew that if he bridged the purchase, he could go through the land registry approval process, through splitting the titles, reissuing, the, reissuing them, you know, redrawing the plans and all the rest of the things that are needed. And he knew that at the end, when he went to refinance on a buy-to-let, he would be able to refinance on this higher uplifted value. The downside was he didn't have the deposit in the first place to offset the 25% deposit he'd need on a standard bridge. So he asked me, would, the, would it be possible to actually borrow based on that uplifted value today? So I said, you know, I mean, funny enough, I went to every single lender in the market and most of them gave me the smart response of, Alistair, we're not in the business of lending people all the money they need to buy houses, really, you know, where, uh, where uh, you know, we need some skin in the game. But eventually I managed to persuade a, a smaller bridging lender that if you think about it from a security perspective, if we issue draft leases on completion and submit plans to land registry, sure, we are still going through an approval process. But as long as we get a view from the solicitors that it's being done in an area where it's unlikely to be declined, then surely we're limiting our risk. And in reality, it's a simultaneous completion. The vendor is selling a multi-unit freehold block, but we're lending and securing against a multi-unit leasehold block. So why can't, if the value agrees on the uplifted value, why can't we lend on that figure? And thankfully they agreed. And we ended up lending this chap 100% of purchase price because of the uplift in value. It was one where uh, the purchase price was something like 650 and the split value was shown at 850. So we lent 70% of 850 and that netted out at 100% of purchase price. So like a BMB deal, right? And so that property put that client on the map. You know, he actually ended up doing four transactions over nine months. And having started with £100,000 of savings, his portfolio is now worth over five million. And he became, we decided to sort of do a traditional marketing strategy. We, we put him on tour. I was already getting invited to speak about the, the brilliance of this title split finance strategy. I brought the client with me to show off the real story, you know, what it was like. And that ended up with us getting 
you know, 10, 20 million a month of inquiries into title splitting to the point that other brokers started to get a bit peeved that we had this product that we hey, designed, tested and proven, and they were getting a bit upset that they couldn't access it because I had obviously got the lender to sign an exclusivity agreement in return for the R&D that I'd put into the project. And we were sending them more than enough business that they were happy with that. But because these brokers were obviously starting to get a bit upset, I was always concerned that eventually a big name would be able to get a big funder to come and create a substitute, right? So what I did was, in, in order to avoid that, I decided to become a lender. In other words, take the funding line that sits behind my lender under my own brand to then allow me to open up my product to other brokers, one, to disinvite competition from a substitution point of view, but also to allow it to help more people by getting it out more broadly, because we're still a small firm. You know, We've done uh, you know, quite a decent amount of transactions over the last two years, but we still only work with probably a thousand clients, uh, many of who are recurring. Whereas, you know, other brokers that have been established for 10 years, they probably have tens of thousands of clients and, you know, they can get this out to more people and we can make a royalty fee in the middle for having assisted. Um, so that product was what put us on the map, got us, you know, we were actually quite loath to advertise it in the early days. We were worried that another lender would think that's a good idea. I'll do that myself. Um, but thankfully, most people didn't like the idea of being so exposed in terms of uh, leverage. Uh, although, obviously, nowadays we do offer OMV bridging as well. So, again, if a client wants to buy something at a deep, realistic discount, legitimate discount, we can lend on market value. Uh, we ended up developing a product for SaaS pensions. So you'll have you'll seen in my bio that I sit on the board of a of a pension advisor. I, I eventually managed to I developed a product that allowed uh, people with SAS pensions, theoretically you can do it with SIPs as well, to um, sorry, to get the benefit of residential uplift in a pension. So traditionally people have always avoided residential property because it's not allowed in a pension. But I argued, and with the help of some pension administrators and HMRC themselves, worked out that actually you're allowed to buy land or an office in a pension, right? So as long as you so there's nothing stopping you from buying that land and building houses or buying an office and converting it to flats as long as you exit the pension before building control sign off, because that's the point at which it would become taxable property. So it, I created, again, a sort of novating, novating development to development asset slash development to development to let product that would allow us to lend money to the SAS for the development. At the point of building control sign off being available, we would down tools sell the property outside of the pension into an SPV externally, either the client's own or a third party, and at the and novate the facility out of the SaaS into the new SPV so that they can move the product quite nicely, right? And again, that was considered quite revolutionary. I mean, I had tech pension funds up and down the country asking me to come in and explain to their technical advisors how to structure it, which was quite cool. Well, my, my my experience of some of these uh, pension administrators is they they are uh, they can be very computer says no. I mean, some of our early some of our earliest loans in Avonmore we were utilised um, one of some of our family SIPs, um, and we had to actually move pension administrator because one of the pension the, the original pension administrator that we were using wouldn't allow my father-in-law's SIP to lend money 
to our to Avonmore's clients. So we had to move that money into in, into a company called Dentons, who are much more established. I'm sure you'd be very familiar with them, um, because they would permit they would permit lending uh, from the SIP. So it was quite you know. So I, I I'm I find it quite I find it fascinating, but also uh, you you probably have a lot of patience, Alistair, because it, you know because I I can imagine there is a there is a, a large minority of these pension administrators who have got I think probably got very uh, you know who are very computer there's no and probably very hard work trying to persuade them to do something that doesn't that doesn't fall into the standard wealth management you know stocks and shares uh, approach. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, and that's the thing why, I mean, so, because theoretically, yes, you can hold commercial property, for example, in a SIP, but your administrator is invariably going to say no, because it's too much hassle and admin to to administer it for you. So that's why we end up with a lot of clients getting these SASs, these small self-administered schemes, mm. where you, in essence, become your own fund manager. And it's, it's a very suited product to, to, to clients where their core trading business is in property. And there's another really cool feature of SASs that I end up, I mean, I don't, um, I mean, funny enough, I'll have a SAS myself eventually when I actually have the time to run my own portfolio. But um, another cool product that I'm always trying to tell clients about, um, and that one of the cool benefits of a SAS is not only obviously can you lend money to yourself, you know, you can use it quite tactically. For example, if you're facing a large corporate tax bill, you can actually inject the money into your pension, and then the very next day lend it after the after April the fourth, lend it back again, right? Because as long as a SAS has at least two trustees, you're not limited to the sixty thousand pound a year allowance. You can actually inject up to half a million pounds a year, and so and you can put it into something that's known as the general fund, which is an unallocated portion of the pension, which is which can be invested today but is earmarked for future trustees. So for example, say a child when they turn 18, you can preload your pension with the funds that you want to give them when they turn 18, invest it now, and then when they turn 18 every year, move 60,000 pounds across from the general fund to that trustee. So that's quite clever. And then there's another really cool thing involving commercial office space that we find quite exciting. Again, we can we can fund it if necessary, but the idea is that you buy an office in your pension, um, you then lease it at market value to your operating entity outside the pension. So you're obviously getting this monthly income tax-free. You're also getting the appreciation of the assets so that if it's ever sold, you're not paying capital gains. You then sublease either simply to a single subtenant for a profit, ideally co-working or serviced because you'll get multiples of revenue. And then you actually end up creating a rental arbitrage outside of your pension, which is quite interesting if you're before the age of 55, because you've now bought an asset in your pension that's allowed you to create an income stream outside of your pension before the age of 55. So there's some really tactical uses to using pension funds. And I try to keep as close as I can to a lot of these industries so I can be designing new products for them um, specifically for this purpose. Well, it sounds like you've got an awful lot going on. How do you um, how do you stay how do you stay on top of it all? I mean, what is your what is your, what is your what does your working day look like? Is it sort of uh, you know sixteen hours a, sixteen hours a day at the desk uh, at the moment, or or, or how, how does it work out? So up to a month ago, I would tell you eighteen hours, seven days a week. Wow! <laughs> but it used to make it particularly fun when I used to go and travel to events and then have to sort of like three o'clock in the morning, you know, half drunk, replying to emails saying, "Sure, sure, I'll get back to you tomorrow morning." Um, I, um, I I recently um, brought on a COO, so I um, went try, took a, a previous director of a lender to to join me as a COO. So a chap called Paul Kermuth, who I've known for 
two and a half years now and actually helped me helped get the permissions for me to launch a lot of my custom products. So he came on as group COO and he's pretty much taken away half my job, uh, which is all the administration, the management of all my uh, team leaders, uh, pretty much anything sort of back in middle office, really, and a lot of the relationships with lenders. I also um, upgraded uh, Trish McGurr, who was running my education and publishing events business to group CMO, and she's now taken over social media. So very curiously, if I don't respond to you on social media, it's actually because I don't run my own social media accounts. They're run by a team. Um, I'm just told if I need to respond to someone, so I jump in and log in myself and respond to messages. But by taking away all of my operational responsibilities and all of my marketing responsibilities, it's allowed me to do what I've wanted to do since I first set up this company, which is just handle transactions. So actually, I've got two titles in the business. I've got the group CEO, and I'm 80% shareholder of the group, but I also have managing director of strategic consulting. So I actually run finance strategy, which is the division that looks after custom product creation, uh, very complex transactions and high net worth clients. And that's my day-to-day -day job. My day-to-day -day job is handling transactions on behalf of clients, turning up as required to give talks at events and letting Paul and Trish in reality run the group and the rest of the business. Um, so that's that's so so my my it's kind of weird because now I've got like these six hour days, and I don't want know what to do with my time. <laughs> you have you have. You I'm have like to get... I'm caught up on years worth of TV series with having extra time now to my, on my hands. I'm like <laughs> I'm almost like sending emails to clients that I haven't heard from in years, saying, "Hey, just checking in to see if there's any work you might want me to do." You know, one might think it's proactive, uh, you know, salesmanship. In reality, it's just I want an email. I need some more work, yeah. you know, so it's kind of like I feel like at a bit of a loose end. So then so then I end up trying to, like, you know, superimpose myself on my management team saying, is there anything I can help with? They're like, no, no, Alistair, you go over there and leave this to us. We don't want to bother you with it. I'm like, are you sure? Really? Is there nothing I can do? <laughs> uh, I, I imagine, you know, well, first of all, I think there's a, there's, there's probably a, a sort of a, a a self-help group for for addicts workaholics like yeah. like you like yourself and myself Alistair that that that, uh, that suffer that kind of affliction I think you probably have I, I I hate to say it but you probably have it maybe a little bit worse than I do even uh but uh well, I ended it, up I went up on holiday with my wife right uh, in Torquay over the summer for a couple of weeks and it would be like you know the first few days lovely go out see the sites do the tours and then after a while it was like please, can you add me to this conference call? I don't care that I'm on holiday. I need to be connected. <laughs> you know. <laughs> uh, sorry, darling, can't come this morning. Got work calls. You have a nice yeah. afternoon. I'll see you later, OK? <laughs> Hopefully she doesn't watch this or she'll kill me. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you never know. We, we, we are becoming massive, uh, as the kids say. Um, OK, so, I mean, in terms of and, and in terms of geography, I mean, you, you were talking about being being based in Lancashire. You, uh, 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 you know, when you were sort of looking at, uh, you know, looking at working for that company in the forest of Boland, it's, by the way, it's an area that I know a little bit myself uh, due to due to my misfortune of where I ended up going to senior school. But um, wh where are you? So where is the where is the office base now? How are the team arranged? Are they are they home based? Are they office based? Or is it a hybrid situation? Uh, what, what does that look like? So we've uh, we've we've embraced the whole pandemic working of uh, of having people working from home as it stands. I mean, funny. I mean, I, funny enough, I'm an investor in a in an offshore call center as it stands, and we learned very clearly over the pandemic that 
you know, for example, if someone can work from home, they can work 10,000 miles away, you might as well get a cheaper rate. So we funded, so we have a case management team that's actually based in the Philippines. Uh, and uh, they've all been approved by the FCA and everything else. And they do a lot of our admin work. Uh, and then all the rest of my team, for the most part, work from home. We are slowly picking up more and more people in the Northwest intentionally, because we do plan to open an office, a formal office in Manchester, uh, probably in the second quarter of next year, especially as our lending business is growing. But 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 right now, I think we have, I think Imogen's in Norwich, um, got a chap in uh, Tottington near Bury. I've got a, la a lady in Rottenstall. Uh, Molly's in near Sales. Um, Samantha's down in Surrey. We even had a chap in the Isle of Man briefly. Um, so yeah, we're sort of all over the place. We have a co-working office down in London, which I've literally been to once. Um, I don't. I think I've never ever had a client asked to visit me at my office. I get lenders asking me to visit at my office all the time, but I've never had a client asked to visit me at the office. And as far as I'm concerned, if lenders want to meet me, they'll meet me at the pub. <laughs> um, but Why? we are we are we are thinking now that actually, as the business is growing and, and with having so many different arms to the business, it would make sense to have a physical base. So we are starting to look at offices now in uh, in Manchester. Actually, um, funny enough, I was talking to one of my clients the other day who's currently trying to sublet one of the part of their office. I might take that off them. But um, but yeah, no, it seems to work fine. You know, I mean, we we work we work under a self-employed basis for the most part. Um, so my senior team generally have retainers. A lot of my brokers are self-employed, so they are technically free to work on other activities as they wish, um, as long as they don't conflict generally. Um, I found out recently that my head of property finance was taking Wednesdays off. It took me about six months to realise she was taking Wednesdays off. I just thought she was really busy and not answering emails. Um, but um, but it seems to work really well for us. I mean, I think the whole team, it's very much of a family atmosphere. And, um, and you know, we try to meet up frequently together all the same to hang out and and we all sort of like run Microsoft Teams like in a sort of form of Slack so we're all sort of chatting to each other all the time anyway so you know what difference does it make if you're in the same room or not it probably saves it's probably more efficient in reality because I don't have to walk down the corridor or go waste 30 minutes making myself a cup of tea right no well I mean it's certainly certainly someone who's uh, personally embraced the the, the sort of working from home dynamics uh quite quite wholeheartedly over the last three and a bit years uh i can see, definitely see the benefit of it but but at the same time when you built a team of 25 30 people many of whom are young professionals who need to be around experienced professionals to learn from um and just the general benefits of information exchange um i i, I do also see particularly with the various businesses that i'm involved in that you do need to that you do benefit I say do need to don't need to but I think you do benefit greatly I, I from being from from having that um from having that sort of in-person information exchange and um and actually I'm I, I myself am probably going to start um you know commuting up to London a bit more a bit more frequently uh because I feel that maybe there's a a, a bit bit of a loss of connection from the office from the workplace um you know I think that you, you just have a, a better finger on the pulse if you're there more uh, than than not. Um, I mean, I can tell you, right, that I mean, I agree with you completely because, I mean, I'm fortunate. I mean, I kind of went the other way around, right? Most people, you know, you start off with someone senior, then you in, hire junior people to train them up. And eventually you get enough junior people that you realise you need a middle manager. Whereas I went the opposite way. I went like, oh, my, too many chiefs, not enough Indians, right? So I actually hired a very senior team to start 
that actually could run the businesses for me. And then they could elect to hire juniors if they wished over time. Funny enough, most of them are actually going to like, I don't really want to share my commission. I'd rather rather stay here and do more work. Um, but, um, but you know, I miss, I miss that sort of like just having an after work drink with a colleague right? or get, just doing a bit of brainstorming or, um, you know, just having that sort of camaraderie, you know, which is one of the reasons why I'm looking forward to, to opening an office, even though I might only be in it about three, three days a week myself. And I think that's probably going to be the flexibility. I think what we'll probably say is, you know, eventually everyone will be in and around the Manchester area. will say like, look, Monday and Friday work from home. That way you can enjoy longer weekends. You can plan stuff. You can get around. You can have a city break every weekend if you want, as long as your work gets done. But Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, we're in the office, right? You know, and we're uh, you know going to be there to help each other with each other's businesses. You know, so yeah. I mean, because at the moment, as it stands, I take my team out. So my top team that are local, you know, we will see each other, you know, twice a month anyway. Um, but um, but yeah, no, I, I think that, uh, you know, it's like you said, that sort of sometimes it's just a case of going over, putting your hand on their shoulder and saying, look, this is how you do it. Or this is I've got a better way of showing you how to do this. Well, I, I think the other thing that's interesting is and, and we've spoken now with a lot of very senior leaders uh, within the within the broken community. And there is a there is no one size fits all approach in terms of how um, office working, uh, office working versus home or slash remote working. Um, you know, I look at, you know, two massive titans in the industry that we've spoken to. Um, we look at Rob Jupp, very, uh, very committed to the office, tried a regional office in Manchester, didn't work, wasn't, didn't really work for them, created a different culture. I think they're very, very connected with their Billericay headquarters at Brightstar. Um, and really they want they want everyone to be in that office probably four days a week minimum. Uh, then I contrast that with uh, with Phil Gray, you know, also very similar experience to to Rob. And Rob's uh, and Phil's approach is, yeah, they've got their, you know, they've got their crew office, but they've also got, an, you know, they're, they're hiring, aggressively hiring new relationship managers dotted all around the country with and, and with the key benefit being that those relationship managers being remotely located means that those relationship managers can go and see that can go and see their clients in face-to-face -face basis a lot easier so um, obviously different you know different it's, businesses um, it's interesting as well right so Phil obviously at Watts right so we um we were quite proud actually at the NACFB awards broker awards back in August that uh, out of all the brokers in the entire market we kept uh, highly commended which I call second place um for commercial broker of the year and we lost out to Watts um, and funny enough, I've got a lot of good friends at Watts and um, and to be honest, to come second behind them, they've been established a lot longer than us and have a much bigger outfit to us is really quite a, something to be proud of. Right. And um, and yeah, and I think I think, you know, one of the things we've done as well is so we have the events business. Right. So we run property networking events all around the country um, online as well. We actually are launching into four international locations next year as well. Also, we have our property support network Miami, which I will be more than happy to go to on a quarterly basis. Um, and so by using these events, we create these sort of hubs. So we get, instead of us having to visit our clients and therefore needing to be in every single county, we actually get our clients to come to us at these events and then have members of our team at those events to talk to them either about their deals or future deals, which we find really interesting. But I, yeah, I think the, I think it, overall, you know, it's it, what suits your business and what suits your management style more than anything. You know, some people feel that they need to, you know, because I think a lot of the time it's a bit like me saying that I just miss that after work beer, 
you know, some people, some some senior managers will probably decide taking their own personal feelings into consideration when looking at their businesses saying, well, I think there's better camaraderie, so I want people around me. Yeah, it's. It, it, I think the particularly post-pandemic, we've we've seen businesses thrive without having to go back to the offices. And we've also seen businesses that find that unless you're in the office, you know, nothing full time, gets done. N- nothing gets done. You know, I think it's, I think what I'm going to be fascinated to, I'm, you know, I guess we'll probably check in with each other. We'll probably have you on for a, a follow up, uh, you know, in in a year or so uh, to see, and maybe we can check in and see what, how how that transition to the office and how that office culture has evolved. Um, but I, I'm what I'm curious to know though is that with so much, um, you know, with, with so many things going on, um, ultimately, where do you see where do you see finance? in you know in five years time what, what's the what does the future of finance look like is it you know is it more as a lender is it more as a is it is it more as an advisor um combi- a combination of the two and you know what and, and and then what so um it's interesting right so our lending arm actually as it stands was set up purely to promote the custom products we build. So we don't really generally compete with the rest of our mainstream brokers. Otherwise, they'd never deal with our brokerage arm. Uh, we only we only really lend on the products that we've built. Um, but, you know, it's, it's a really good question. I get asked it all the time. I've had it. I've been asked it by private equity houses recently as well. I even had KPMG's M&A team get in touch with me saying, Alistair, so what are your think, plans for the future in terms of growing the business? And I'm like, oh, yeah, why are you guys working on behalf of a client that's buying? Um, so... I just want to keep growing, really. I mean, I, I was fortunate enough again to have this very successful early career. I then had a successful business of my own that I was able to sell on to allow me to fundamentally start finance as a part time job that just happens to have exploded by accident, really, or through hard work, determination and tenacity, let's say. But by accident sounds much more humble. Um, and um, so I'm just really growing, growing taking it every day as it comes if that makes sense i mean yeah i am um, most of my divisions have come about off the back of clients asking if we did it so three separate clients asked me can you arrange business loans or invoice finance and after on the third on the fourth time i was asked it, i said clearly we're missing a trick here we should have a business finance brokerage as well because we're getting asked about it so we went and set it up and took the list of all the lenders off the NACFB links and, uh, you know, started our business finance team, which now is doing crazy stuff like the, for example, I'm currently factoring a 24 million euro invoice for a top 10 Spanish football team for the sale of a player they sold to Saudi Arabia. <laughs> right. Crazy, right? You know, <laughs> alongside that invoice finance and that corporate fire alarm system that I put in a hotel recently. Um you know, my education business came out very much as a result of getting kind of tired of uh, having to keep teaching people the same thing over and over again. Um, the lending arm obviously came out to allow other brokers to access our custom products. We're actually developing a software as well. We've got a technology business. We're actually going to actually currently building a software that actually is hopefully designed to save us time with, because right now what you have is you have onboarding software, you have EKYC software, you have aggregation and sourcing software, and then you have follow-up software. And then you have the CRM and we're trying to create our own system that combines everything in one place, mm. which we will actually SaaS and sell out to our peers in the industry eventually. Um, so 
you know, we're just, you know, building things that we need and then seeing if other people are interested in them as well. You know, we're toying as well with looking at potentially creating a buying group because we probably have about 100 brokers now um, registered to our broker, to our lender. You know, is there a way to, considering we're a broker as well, um, given the fact that we've had such a, a fast growth story, is there a way that we could help these brokers grow their businesses as well? Because the more we help them, the more they use our lending arm, right? Um, you know, that has to be more than just paying them more prop fee, right? There has to be something else I can help them with, given our experience. So we're looking at exploring all these different strategies at the moment. I don't think I'm going to add any more businesses to the existing remit. I mean, our sourcing or origination, uh, I'm going to call it finance origination, which will be sourcing a property, uh, arranging a finance, uh, assisting and guiding with planning permission and construction projects, and then eventual sale. That'll probably be the, one of the last businesses. Um, but but um, but no, I think it's. I just want to look after my people, if that makes sense. You know, I want to get to the stage where the business has grown strong enough that my top team are well looked after. Um, but if I were to put anything on it, I would say within ten years, I would probably consider an IPO. Okay. You know, rather than a trade sale. Rather than a trade sale or a sale to a PE or okay. That's I mean, I think, it's, I think it's anything, interesting. I think if anything, it's like. You know, being an only child myself, and um, I have a stepdaughter as it stands through my through marriage, but um, in a little bit of a home truth here, I um, I can't have children um, genetically. It's a it's a long-standing uh, genetic illness that I have that's not hereditary, but uh, it doesn't matter because I can't have children because one of the side effects is I can't have children. So my whole life I've been very much focused on the idea of my legacy, leaving you know, something memorable of me behind. Um, and that's why I don't really want to, you know, now that I've uh, built this business and it seems like it's really going places and it has a, I think, a very strong future. And I want, you know, I don't know. I mean, maybe this is a little bit narcissistic, but I mean, I kind of want something of me to remain when I'm no longer here. Even if it's just a photo of the guy that's first set up the company in the halls, you know, of the head office. So that's why I just want to keep growing it and 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 build for the next generation in such a way that they can build it for the next generation beyond that. You know? I, I, I don't know if I'd say I wouldn't describe it as narcissistic. Alistair. I mean, if in truth, I, I would say that I similarly, you know, I, I was similarly from a business perspective. I mean, you know, I've, I've been blessed with with children and family, but. You know, from a business perspective, I, I do want to leave a mark, you know, leave some sort of lasting mark on uh, on, on industry in the world, whether that's building a, a, a massive, uh, you know, massive skyscraper in, in a city centre, which, you know, which which has stand the test of time or whether that's uh, some other form of legacy whether, from a charity, you know, whether it's a charitable perspective or whether that's from building businesses and giving, you know, but I think that the, the you do you do leave a legacy if you're you know every time you create jobs every time you you create a uh, a living for some you know a, a, live, a living or an opportunity for someone which didn't exist before um you know you're you are leaving a legacy every time you unlock finance on a development deal um you know for example we we you know talking about you know talking about brokers copying your your product ideas lenders copying your product ideas you know we you know we we kind of commercialize the concepts of finish and exit uh and but you know 
you know, I'm going to say this, but no one can do finish and exit the way we could we could do finish and exit. But then you found that the entire market was calling it finish and exit. Well, that was our that was our product. That, but you can't really put IP on on our financial service product. So we've had to rebrand that and call it part complete development because that's really that that really then takes it out out, out of the equation. But the fact is, and you know, it's just, funny actually. Last year at the BNC Awards, not this, not I actually was the one. I actually had I'd done something that no other broker had ever done. I actually sponsor was one of the sponsors of the BNC Awards, and I actually had the, the pleasure and honour of giving Avermore Development Lender of the Year as an award. And it was quite funny actually because I was super looking forward to being on stage with everyone, having my picture taken, and that. Yeah. And then you've got such a bloody tall team. I'm six foot four. You have <laughs> such a bleeding tall team of people in there that I ended up being this floating head in the background. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I mean, I, I, I'm only I'm only six six foot two, so you know, it's uh, I, I, you, you, you might actually be a little bit above me there. Uh, but uh, I mean, I, you know, I, I think, but I guess the point around legacy though that that I was trying to trying to get at was that. You know, even if you by unlocking a development deal, you're, you know, particularly in part complete development, you might have a contractor who's not been paid. So you you're unlocking, you're effectively putting money in that contractor's pockets. That's putting money in subcontractors pockets. You know, there's so many people within an ecosystem that you're having an impact on. And, you know, you don't need to have, you know, you don't. In, in a lot of ways, I don't think you need to have a a, a bronze statue outside a, a sports stadium to to have had a leg to have left a lasting legacy. You can still make a very positive impact and and leave a positive legacy. Uh, you know, it, it, you know, in in a variety and multitude of ways. So, um, but you know, but listen, I appreciate. I actually want to just say thank you for being vulnerable and being open about uh, you know, about your own particular circumstances. And so, uh, and and thank you for sharing that. Um. In terms of in terms of people that are, are you know that you feel connected with that are inspirational to you um, that are important to you you mentioned your father and your mother and you know obviously being very close to them as uh, being close to them um, are there any other people that you would say that have been key key sources of inspiration to you in your life or or people you who have provided you with mentorship that you you know that you probably wouldn't be here without them it's um it's interesting really. I mean, I never got the graduate programs or anything like that when I was younger because I just accelerated too quickly. But I mean, I have I, I thank a lot of my my bosses. Right. I mean, uh, Sokjen, for example, Jacques Néron was my, uh, my the boss, the head of the fixed income client management team. He's the one that sort of put me forward and, you know, wanted, you know, impressed. It was impressed with me and got me to stay on while I was still at university and also lined me up for my job in Hong Kong. Um, I've got uh, Forrest Hayes from Standard Chartered, who, again, recognised talent in me and and uh, promoted me again at a very young age. Um, you know, my boss at the Korean hedge fund, Myung-Joo Park, he was awesome, right? You know, not just having to help him with expense accounts. Uh, <laughs> he's a really such a cool guy, right? You know, America, uh, pure, pure through and through Korean, but had spent a lot of time in America, so was understood the the the, the changes in traditions. Um, you know, and um, and I think as well, you know, you know, coming back to my current team, you know, Paul, Trish, Molly, Imogen, Sam, everybody in the in the organization, you know, Rachel, Mark, our latest hire, you know, they're um, you know, we hire inspiring people who work hard and and want to put the client first. And, you know, they the hard work that my own team put in inspire me every day. I mean, I 
I'll, 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 I remember often write, I'll write to Molly on the weekend asking her if she had a good night out and then she'll start to, you know, dipping into a client case. And I'm like, oh, well, OK, well, if you want to talk about this, you know, I'm happy to talk about it. And then I almost feel guilty halfway through. And I said, well, I better leave you to your I don't know, beauty sleep or something. <laughs> yeah. um, so it's, uh, you know, it's it's just it's nice. You know, it's great when you work with people that you can be inspired by and who inspire you to work harder and you know, like work, you know, like whenever we have difficult months, you know, it's always like the pressure's on me to make sure I do enough sales to offset the fact that they've struggled. And, um, you know, so that's it, really. I mean, I've never really been I've never looked at sort of like entrepreneurs out in the world, you know, Richard Branson's and people like that with any particular. You know. Aspiration, I mean, I think they're amazing business people, and if you're self-made, then you definitely have more. Uh, respect from me but uh, you know and I've not been bothered about football players you know like well done you can kick a ball good for you don't think you deserve that salary though um you know but uh, modern gladiators they're lucky they don't get killed at the end of the show um but um but no I think I think I've always generally looked internally for my own uh, inspiration you know and uh, you know as your ma- mother always tells you, you know you can do anything if you put your mind to it so that's yeah. been me <laughs> well I, I think you know I, th- I think if if I don't think, Alistair, you really need too much in, uh, inspiration or motivation to work harder, given how breathless uh, how breathless you've made me feel uh, and how exhausted you've made me feel just hearing about all the things you've got going on. And by the way, I'm 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 involved in and running five different businesses myself, so and on a pretty diverse portfolio, uh, and and I and I sort of feel like my hair's on fire a lot. And I and, but listening to you. I feel like I'm not working hard enough, which is actually quite scary. Um, yeah, there's an extra time, time in the day, Michael, you can manage. Oh, well, like, listen, I, <laughs> there aren't many free spare hours as, as it is, um, but may, maybe I need to prioritise a bit better. But um, but speaking of the, the few hours that you do uh, on a week that you that you're not uh, that you're not working, I mean, how do you like to spend your time when you're not working? And, and then second, secondly, you know, what are you what are you doing what are you doing from a lifestyle perspective to kind of keep yourself on the straight and narrow and and and, and coping with the stress and the demands of your incredibly busy lifestyle so um i like to play racquetball which is a variation of squash it's like playing on a squash court bouncy ball more tactical giraffes not chess i'd say um and i really enjoy that and uh, i still play with my dad actually um and I don't give him any quarter whatsoever. That ex- that heart attack was no excuse whatsoever. <laughs> okay. I'd like to play with more people, but again, I live quite remote, and uh, I tried playing against my wife a bit, but it was uh, I didn't have the patience to train her to be a strong player. I probably should at some point, but because um, you, you see, should... I live right I live right in the centre of the Forest of Bowland near Chipping. As soon as you said, you know the the area quite well. Yeah. Um. But um. But it's um. So that's so racquetball's my sport. I I I, I threatened to go out walking in the hills around me frequently but invariably find excuses to, to avoid it um I, I i book a lot of trips away as it stands um so um generally work related um for networking events or lunches or um, conferences and so on um and if i take my wife i was treated to like the local michelin restaurant as her present for allowing me to go in the first place um so i'm I, I, I ate at Manor the other day in Manchester, the, the restaurant, the only restaurant there that has a Michelin star. And it was it, it co- took an extra mortgage to pay for it. But it was really good, by the way. 
14 courses over two and a half hours. Really nice. Um, but I, I, you know, I love catching up, right? So I mean, I'm I'm in Manchester on Thursday this week, going to a, a an estate agent surveyors networking drinks party, and then on Friday I'm hosting my 40th birthday party with friends and colleagues. It's mostly networking. I've got Cameron from your team coming because he's become over time he's become a good friend of mine, and he's, uh, so he's we get to talk guy, a little yeah. bit of a little bit about lending and a little bit of, and more about friendship really. Um, I invited I always invite Adam, but he's a uh, Making the effort to come up from London is probably a bit so, of a pain. Yeah, well, listen, um, we 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 uh, we want to wish you a very happy 40th birthday in in in, in, in that regard, and I'm sure uh, I'm sure you'll be well covered anyway with with Cameron uh, no, Cameron jo- joining you too. He, he, so, he yeah. came for my uh, I had a, I had a I had a birthday party last week as well. Funny enough, because my wife turned 40 in October, so we had a separate birthday party last week that Cameron came to, and he had a good time there, I believe. <laughs> and I'll be seeing you guys anyway because you're throwing your party, aren't you? I think if I look at my calendar, I'm at your party that's being held on the second in Manchester. Um, that's right. You know, yeah. Avermore's got its cap. I think it's celebrating over milestones in years and lending amount. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's uh, well, well, we uh, unfortunately I won't be there, but I think the DZ, uh, DZ the CEO, he, he should be there as well. As, as well, it's well OK, as I'll drink your share. So don't you, worry. Don't worry, we'll have we'll have to make up for that. We'll have to make up for my absence in, in a different yeah. time. Alistair. We'll, I'm sure we'll 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 enjoy each other's company uh, over a glass of something, uh, you know, stronger than a cup of tea. Uh, sooner, sooner rather than later. Um, I think uh, I think probably a good time to to wrap up now, Alistair. But uh, and uh, I'm sure our listeners have, have very much enjoyed listening to you. And and certainly, uh, maybe when we do a round two, we can probably uh, we can maybe dip into some of those uh, some of those Asian some more stories from your time in Asia as well, which I'm, I'm sure would be very entertaining. Uh, and and of course, we'd be delighted to hear about the the ongoing success of, of finance as well. Um, I guess, what advice would you give? I'm actually going to turn it in, make it a two prong question because I normally ask this question, which is inward looking. But I think I'd also like to, like you to kind of advise someone who who isn't you, uh, who who who's kind of at the start of their career. So, what advice would you have? You know, looking back now, what advice would you have given your younger self, um, knowing what you do now? At the start of your career, and and what advice more generally would you give to, to someone um, who's at the start of their career um, and is maybe has aspirations of being an entrepreneur? So, I think when I was younger, I don't even know, probably even now, I was quite proud, right? You know, I I, I took a front very easily. Um, I don't know. I mean, like, I mean, another sort of home truth. So I was bullied very badly when I was at school, when I was a teenager, for the most part. I don't know if it was something about relocating from Italy and coming to England and joining halfway through the school year and everyone having already formed their cliques right and uh, picking a local football team to support in the Midlands that had the most Italian players, i.e. Chelsea, didn't go down very well, <laughs> the supporters. So that probably didn't help. But um, But I think I, you know, I... I desperately wanted to succeed when I was younger. I wanted to get promoted quickly. I wanted to get paid a lot of money very quickly. And I think I left Standard Chartered too early. I mean, as it stands, I mean, I was offered this fantastic opportunity to go and work in Hong Kong again in this fund manager. But part of the reason why I left so quickly was actually down to the fact that I've been promoted. 
So I've been I was being moved up into a senior director role from director, and my salary had increased appropriately, right? It gone it was it was crazy numbers already. I think it was from 150 up to like 350,000. But my boss had to tick. There were two apparently there were two applications in order to process my promotion. One was the promotion in title and rank and privilege, but there was a second sort of form that he was meant to fill in in order to approve an upgrade to my bonus because bonuses at Santa Charter at the time were capped within your rank bands so the maximum a director could earn in this level of the company would be say 300,000 but because I was being promoted at the same time I was told in advance that my bonus would have been 500,000 let's say because that was the maximum I could have got at the new rank but he forgot to tick a box. So I, instead of being thrilled that I'd just been promoted, had my salary doubled and made a 200 grand bonus, I was so angry. Probably because I was spending way too much money on credit cards, bought a car I couldn't afford. I was living in a flat I couldn't afford, you know, because I was trying to keep up with the Joneses. Because all of my peers that were at the same rank as me were all 40 when I was 30, right? And I had this misconceived a perception that I needed to compete with them and be just as good, right, and look as good, buy the same shit. So I got really upset and I asked my boss, you know, will you correct this mistake? And he said, he said to me that actually it would threaten his career for him to go to the head of HR and the head of the, the group head of our division to say that he made the mistake and that could I just wait till next year? And I knew very much well in, in banking that uh, next year when it comes to bonuses, cannot be trusted. Um, so I got really upset and I sort of resigned in anger. And um, and I think it, I, I genuinely think that it put my career back about five years. Because if I had stuck around, taken it on the chin, accepted his mistake, the following year, he was promoted to MD and I probably would have been a senior MD and was given uh, and was relocated to the US. I probably would have made MD in Singapore and been given the run of the entire team that I was previously just a senior part of. And, you know, now, 10 years later, who knows, I might have been at Goldman or somewhere like that, right, in a, in a very senior role, having been promoted young and built a big book. And I mean, I love my time at the hedge fund. It was great. You know, it's good, a massive experience. And I wanted to move to the buy side. And, you know, of course, it was fun running my, my my own consulting business, but it wasn't without its challenges. You know, there was always it was always an eat what you kill. It wasn't just a case of rolling contracts with loads of money, you know, and there were difficult times. So I wish I had been, you know, more patient, and more understanding and more mature, really, when it, when it, when it comes back to looking back at my career. You know, it, it's all worked out now. You know, I'm I'm self-actualizing now. I'm 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 probably on track if I eventually start paying myself to make more than I ever would have in banking. And at least I work for myself and I'm building my own legacy. But it I do always look back and reflect on how immature I was and how, you know, that proved that I shouldn't have been the rank I was, you know, because I didn't have the maturity. I might have had the skill and the experience and the drive, but I didn't have the maturity for my rank. And so telling so to give advice to anyone else or my younger self, it's to accept that, you know, you can be bright and you can be brilliant, but but you need to mature as well. And sometimes that is 
it, it, you need to take a step back and look at the bigger picture. You know, you might not have considered everything. You might not know what's going on behind the scenes. You know, so if somebody says that you need to, you know, don't let someone, you know, make you work 10 years to get promoted, but definitely realize that you need to take your time to earn those stripes and that, um, you know, that, that there's, that, there are, that your promotion affects other people, right? There are people, you know, do you want to be the person that steps on others to succeed or or do you want to actually grow more naturally and more understandably, right? I don't know, really know. I don't know if you're getting what I mean, Mike. But I, 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 I mean, I don't don't take my silence as as, uh, as 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 a lack of understanding. I think actually what's interesting is I didn't want to interrupt you because uh, I it, what you're saying is something I actually really connect with myself. I see a lot of parallels in my own my own younger self um, in, in more in terms of I always say I was always in too much of a hurry and I I was in too much of a hurry. And and actually, if I if I'd been more patient um, and, and actually focus, focus on what you can learn, focus on what uh, focus, focus on the process as opposed to outcomes and you know dollar signs because if you you know if if you if you are all if you're able to deliver enough value for people uh, if you're able to create enough value for people you the the dollar sign the dollars will always follow right the money will always come exactly. um so uh, you know funny thing, you know i love my job at santa charter i really enjoyed it i had i had power and influence and but i had but i was respected right and i was you know i was seen as a you know like a right you know like a future rising star you know, I had I was young, but in a senior role. I love what I did. I love my clients. And to be honest, I love the job more than I love the money. But in those days, I put the money first. Mm. It was all about the money and the disrespect that I was being served. And you know what? It's taken me until, you know, it took me so long, right? You know, I think at 35, I suddenly finally realized, you know what? I'd rather just do a job I love. And if I get paid enough to live, I'm happy with that. And if, and, and when I eventually stopped chasing the money, as I have done with finance, I stopped chasing the money. And weirdly, when I stopped chasing the money, it became so easy to make money. I I, I couldn't agree more. If you're not, I, I tends, it tends to be that the, the money money tends to follow you when you're not necessarily looking for it, uh, which is a which is quite bizarre, isn't it? Um, you know, like I, I, mean, I, I, I I'm, I'm conscious of time, but I just you know just hearing what you said, I I look I look at the start of your career, the you know the silver card, the savvy home. And you're just such a natural entrepreneur. And I just and I can't help but think that when you have two successful entrepreneurial ventures, which you're actually able to sell out of at such an early stage to then go on uh, to then go on and go into corporate, you know, corporate banking, well, corporate banking, but, you know, investment banking for a relatively long period of time. It seems it's almost seems like do you do you have regrets about even going into that that side of things that you? you know do you not wish that you do you not there's not is there a part of you that thinks do you know what i maybe i should have just gone straight into on to being an entrepreneur um and i can tell you what, i regret I not now? spending my money on buying property in bulgaria before it shot up in value you know i can tell you <laughs> that <laughs> the amount of bonuses that i've wasted on drinks instead of buying assets it's crazy um do you know it's funny right a lot of my early ideas were gimmicky Right, you know, like the savvy home was taking advantage of a loophole that they eventually ironed out and got rid of entirely. Uh, the the concierge business, to be honest, it just didn't exist in Lancaster. I'd seen other options around the world, um, and I I didn't have any good ideas. Right, if I had good ideas, I generally get them developed. 
or I sell them on for you know rights and so on. Um, and you know, I think I mean this this wasn't two years later, but I think Jack Maher came out with something quite cool, right? He said that you know, we'll go to school and study hard, then get a job working for somebody else for a good ten years, and after you've had that experience of working for someone else, then that's the time to start your own business. And I knew so I, when I left, so after I got rid of um, Savvy Home. I knew that the most money, because again, I was still craving the money in those days. I knew the most money I could make without working for myself was to work in investment banking. Um, so that's why I focused my entire energy on getting into investment banking, even though I actually, funny enough, didn't qualify in the traditional route. If I wasn't from the right family, I didn't know the right people, yeah. I didn't go to the right school. I had to get in through that summer job opening the mail, right? And eventually prove myself that way. But, you know, that experience of running a business, you know, that experience of, Let's call it high finance if we compare it to property finance and you know the experiences i've had then as a result of you know being a cog in a machine and understanding how corporations work and understanding the politics and the budgets and all these various factors that go into being a, an employee that's what probably helped me be a better leader and business manager today you know i you know especially with my employees who for the most part haven't worked for themselves you know i need to give them that sense of continuation that corporation feel that they're used to but tweaking bits and pieces here you know so getting rid of slow bureaucracy when it comes to decision making making it easier to buy someone a hamper to thank them for a job well done you know it's like the the corporate life has taught me to be to build a better corporation of my own well i think um i think that's probably probably a fair a fair conclusion actually as you know at the end of the day it's 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 your own you know it's, it's your own personal assessment and certainly if that's how you feel then who who am i to argue with it so yeah. uh no appreciate that alistair um all right alistair well listen thank you very much for for your time uh i am going to go and have a lie down uh because i'm uh i'm slightly exhausted from uh from Sorry, hearing, all, from hearing so all of hearing from all about all the various things that you're doing and all the things you've done and then once i'm up from my lie down i'm gonna have to then work a bit harder because you've definitely inspired me to work harder because i it tell you if, if there's one thing's for sure you're 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 possibly the hardest working person I, i've spoken to for a very long time uh how can our how can our listeners get, get in touch with you if they want to um talk to you about what they've heard today um social is is a, is a social media uh handles that they can contact or uh you mentioned uh alistairhoyne.com yeah, uh, are there any other any other ways that people can get in touch or what's your preferred way of of, of our listeners contacting you? um yeah well alistairhoyne.com will take you straight to my linkedin page uh, which you can write to me on there um otherwise it's probably going to be best by email really i mean uh, i think my email is agh at finance.co.uk or if you go to financestrategy.com, that links you directly to my calendar. Um, I don't really have any other social media as it stands. I mean, funny enough, Instagram and Facebook and all that stuff, it's all company-based uh, um, sites. Um, I've always taken the approach that if you have my phone number, that means you're a real friend. So drop me a line and then you'll get my phone number off the signature. <laughs> Super. Well, Alistair, thank you so much for your time. Uh, we look forward to having you back on again soon. And uh um, I guess, uh, have, and also many happy returns and enjoy your party. Thank you so much. All right. Michael. All the best. Speak to you. Bye.
A big thank you goes out to the official sponsor of the Property Funder podcast, Avonmore Capital, a property bridging and development lender located here in London. They, as much as me, understand the importance of somebody's story and how they got to where they are. Lending on projects from just £250,000 across the entirety of England and Wales, their understanding of all development backgrounds and can help support you at any stage in a scheme, even if you just have one brick down. Visit www.avonmorecapital.com to find out more about how they can help you in your development journey. Thanks so much for tuning into this podcast. I hope you can go away having learned something new and even picked up some new things to apply to your day today. Catch us in the next episode for another interesting story.